I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 7, and I am excited for us to be entering into this uh, Advent season as we consider Advent this time as we have already heard where we uh, look in expectation, in a fresh in expectation to the work of Christ in our lives, this one who has come fully God and fully man to bring our salvation uh, we have, uh, we are in the coming weeks, as you'll see in I think the announcement section of your bulletin, going to work through uh, three or four messages, looking at the prophecies in the Old Testament book of Isaiah that point to Christ. Many of which are referenced in the New Testament, and we have, of course, done a series through the passages that are familiar to us in Matthew and and Luke and so forth in the past. And uh, it, those, those are good. We, we'll plan to do similar series again. But I want us to look back into the Old Testament over the next few weeks because when we only look at those New Testament passages, it can be a little bit like showing up to the movie theater for that latest spy thriller film. And we discover that we got the time wrong and are there about 20 minutes late. The movie's already been going. You go into the theater, and you sit down, and before long you realize that you've missed a lot of information at the front end of that movie about who those characters are. And you've missed as well a little bit of the plot twists and turns already. It's not that you can't get the rest of the movie, but you feel like something might just be missing there. So too, for us, as we look at these Old Testament passages, uh, we don't have to in order to understand the message of Jesus coming into the world that we read in the New Testament. But it's a great help to us if we look back, it fills in that story so we can understand so much better the work of Christ. So I hope doing this will help us to have a a greater perspective on what God has done in sending His Son and the plan of salvation for us. As we look today at this particular passage We're looking, as we heard read earlier in the service, at a passage that Matthew cites some 800 years later, after the time of Isaiah, in the day of Jesus, 800 years after the time of Isaiah. Matthew speaks these words, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, in the sake of full disclosure, as we look at these Old Testament passages, we're, we're not going to be looking the next couple of weeks at uh, sipping some infant formula through a straw. It's going to be a little bit more like cutting into a thick steak. And I hope that all of us have as part of our spiritual life a desire to grow deeper into the Lord. Not just to stay where we are, but to move forward with them. And and in particular, in the next couple of weeks, I hope we'll have that posture, that attitude as we come on Sunday mornings. Now, the challenge of cutting into that steak is that it requires a little more effort to cut. And it requires a little more effort to chew that thing. But the blessings are wonderful as well. It's very juicy. Tastes wonderful, and it gives us, if you will, that biblical stake, the the spiritual protein we need to build our strength in the Lord. So that's what we want to do in the coming weeks, and so I hope you'll 
join with me along in that journey. I wouldn't be taking us there if I didn't think it was good for us, but it'll require a little bit of focus and attention, maybe more so than we're used to. And, and we will use those Old Testament passages certainly as a lens to look on those familiar New Testament passages that we know at Christmas time. So it'll tie together, I think, for you. Let's go ahead and begin. Uh, Get your steak knife, get your napkin on your lap, get your steak knife out, if you will, because we want to start right away with this. As we look at this book of Isaiah and the particular passage we're looking at today, we find ourselves in a time in the Old Testament when God's people, and this is true of the whole time of the prophets, when God's people are surrounded on the outside with threats, with enemies from around them, that are threatening to overtake their nation. We also find that they're threatened from within, with internal spiritual decay and apathy. And so as we look at this, we understand that Isaiah's message is that God's presence with us is so important, just as it was so important for them to realize back in the time of Isaiah. Now, I'm going to take us back just a little bit further even. Again, keep that steak steak knife in hand, and we'll zoom up to where we are today. To really get what's going on in Isaiah, we really got to get the whole picture of the Old Testament. So give me just a minute to run through that with you, following a couple of themes. All the way back in Genesis, you've got God creating a people. Those people are number two, number two people, Adam and Eve. They're in a place, Eden. They've got God's presence with them. You remember he walked in the garden with them. And they're under God's gracious rule and blessing. The fall into sin occurs, and you remember some of the very first things that happened for Adam and Eve. They're expelled from God's place. They fall out of direct relationship with God's presence. They aren't experiencing that in the way that they have before. And they need now a promised redeemer, one who would come and allow them to enter back into experiencing the grace of God's rule and blessing. Genesis 3:15 hints even back in those very first passages of scripture at a redeemer who would come, one who would come, it says, who's born of a woman, a seed of a woman, who will crush the head of the serpent of Satan. The promise given all the way back then. Follow with me now through the Old Testament as well. Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all are given promises of a place that God would lead them to. That they would be able to live under God's rule and blessing. Have a knowledge of His presence. They are eventually taken into this land of Egypt, which is away from their place, if you will. But while they're there, God's people expands greatly into a huge nation. God brings them out. He's with them by the pillar of cloud and fire by, uh, fire by night. He's with them in the ark that they carry with them, a sign of God's presence with them, that he is God with them. And they're going where? To God's place as God's people. Come into the time of the judges, and we have Samson and Gideon and Deborah and others that lead God's people. And then the culmination of God's earthly kingdom in his place, under his rule and blessing, with his presence, King Solomon and King David. We see the fulfillment of that Old Testament earthly kingdom come into culmination. 
brings us right up to our passage today. Isaiah is now sitting a few generations after those kings. And the people of God have actually divided into two separate nations. Told you it was going to take a steak knife this morning. Hang with me. The nation of Israel to the north, the northern kingdom, and Judah to the south. King Ahaz is the king of Judah to the south. And there's another nation, Syria. Israel and Syria are threatening to join together. They're some of those enemies from outside that are threatening to overtake Ahaz and this king of Judah. And in the midst of that, Ahaz, faced with these enemies, has to decide, is he going to trust God's presence? Is he going to trust that God is with him in what he is facing? So too for us, as we read these verses today, I think you'll see an invitation for us to trust afresh as we read this Christmas message that God is with us, Emmanuel, he's with us, that we can trust him afresh today. So stand with me now, if you will, with that extended introduction. We won't go through that every week. As we read these verses, and just track along with me. You know, I've got some notes in your bulletin, in your worship guide. There's a section at the back of your worship guide that will give you a little data if you get lost on the characters here. I'll explain it a little bit later, so don't get too phased by that. But let me read aloud as you read along silently. Isaiah chapter 7, we're going to look at verses 1 all the way to 17. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah... Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, that's the same as Israel, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshub. That's got a meaning. Shear Jeshub means a remnant shall return. We'll come back to that. Your son, in verse 4, and say to him, Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint. Because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramaliah, because Syria and Ephraim and the son of Ramaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabal as king in the midst of it. No, God says, thus says the Lord, it shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken to pieces so that it will no longer be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And then this is the focal point of our time this morning, folks. So uh, zoom in with me on verses 10 through 17. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as the heavens. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And God said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? 
Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land of the two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day of Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. You may be seated. Oh, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to dive into the stake of your word today. And we ask that you would help us to cut it effectively and, Lord, chew it, that we might be strengthened in you during this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you don't feel this way already looking at some of these Old Testament passages, even hopefully with some help from my extended introduction there, we can look at these verses. Whether we look at them in some of the New Testament statements about Jesus' coming or go all the way back to Isaiah like we just did, it can look a little confusing. It's hard to see the picture that we think we're supposed to see. It's a little bit like those uh, pictures that came came about in the early 90s You remember, this was long before the 3D TV. These were just posters. And if you walked up to one of them, it sort of just looked like a pattern of colors across this poster. But you saw them at the mall, and maybe your friends got one of them, and you had never really walked up to one of them before. And then someone said, you know, these things are amazing. If you'll walk up and look at this, and you have to kind of look at it and do something sort of strange with your eyes, but if you can do that and sort of focus and unfocus, all of a sudden, out emerges a 3D sort of holographic image of a dolphin jumping up out of the water or the front of a castle with the drawbridge and the turret standing high above. It was all there all along. But you just needed to figure out how to look at it correctly to see it. And it really wasn't until you got a little practice looking at it that you were able to see it. Well, there's a lot that we can take from that for all of God's Word and seeking to understand it and grow in it. But certainly for our passage today. God has this message for us that on the surface might be a little difficult, I'll admit, to see. It's not readily accessible to us. But if we will look and maybe get some help today to figure out how to adjust our eyes, I hope that we'll be able to see a clear message about God's presence with us. Indeed, in the back of your worship guide, if you want to follow along, there's a note section, and it has this main idea that I hope for us to see today, that we can trust fully in God because He's fully present with us. And trust fully in God because He's fully present with us. He's in our lives. If our trust is in Christ, He is in our lives at work. But what keeps us from realizing the beauty and the reality of God's presence with us, at least two things I can think of. Some of us live with a sense of abandonment, fear, uncertainty about God being with us. Others of us maybe live with with a sense of self-sufficiency, and pride that we don't need God with us. I guess you could put it this way. One says, 
in the face of all that life has before you and the difficulties and struggles that you face, one cries out to God, where is God? The other shrugs and says, where is God? Those are two ways that we tend to deal with God's presence in our sinfulness. We miss the fact that God is with us because we're self-sufficient. We think we can handle the situations in life by ourselves. And so the reality that God is working all around us, if we're closed off to that, we don't see it. We miss the beauty of the reality that God's at work in our lives. Likewise, if we have this sense of abandonment, this sense of weakness, and we can't see that God is actually with us, we miss the tremendous encouragement and strength that can come from knowing that God really really cares deeply about each and everything that is going on in our lives. All of this gets tested, of course, when something all of a sudden comes into our life and rattles our cage, like King Ahaz in this passage. You understand what's going on. These northern kingdom and Assyria are threatening him, and then the big dogs on the block, Assyria, they're stomping out there in the distance as well. The whole nation from the inside is coming unglued because they've taken the prosperity, the blessing spiritually and materially that God's given and has turned into spiritual apathy, discontentment. So he's got a problem, and these enemies are stomping outside. When we have those things in our life that come in all of a sudden, it startles us. And we have to figure out how to orient ourselves to the reality of God. I had an interesting experience along these lines yesterday morning on my pretty regular Saturday morning jog through the neighborhood. About 6 o'clock or so in the morning, out running, and I was uh, turning into one of the cul-de-sacs of our neighborhood, which is just house upon house upon house. There's about 30 houses down this uh, freestone ridge cul-de-sac, I'd say, and I turned that corner early in the morning, nobody around, all of a sudden heard a loud crash that sounded to me similar to the noise that I hear when my boys are, though they're not supposed to, throwing a ball against our metal garage door at our house. Well, it got my attention because it was about ten times louder than that crash. And I expected to look up and see that someone in the neighborhood had inadvertently driven their own car right through their own garage door. I saw something else that was much more unexpected. Right in the middle of the neighborhood, right in the middle of the cul-de-sac, was a six-point buck who had just smashed his head into somebody's garage door. He shook his head off, I'm not making this up, ran, galloped about 30 feet right in front of me, trying to make his way further back into the cul-de-sac, which runs kind of straight back in. Of course, I was startled, so I stopped at first with my jog and just was amazed to see this deer running straight across through the neighborhood. He galloped right through the front yards of people, just five, ten feet from everybody's front door, on back into the neighborhood. And I stood and watched there a minute, and then I thought, well, he's going on back there. I'll continue on with my jog. He, he darted in between two houses, about three or four houses down, and I kept jogging. And then about two seconds later... He comes flying back into the cul-de-sac and on down another three or four houses. He'd hit several fences and couldn't get through. 
He does the same thing again. By this time, I'm just laughing as I sort of have reduced my speed to about this rate just to see what the deer's going to do next. We get all the way down to the end of the cul-de-sac, and a couple of the houses there are built like an L with the garages over here and the other part of the house. He literally runs into the driveway, front yard, flower bed area, makes two or three circles, and finally makes his way through the houses and back into some nearby woods. When stuff in life shocks us, like I'm sure I shocked that deer when I came around that corner. I guess he was laying in somebody's yard. When stuff in life shocks us, if we don't have a reality, a knowledge of the Lord's presence that's very close to us, we act, let's admit it, so often like that deer. We might spin around and run smack into a garage door. We might try to find different ways to get out of wherever we are and run into fences. We might just stand around and spin in circles for a while. God promises we don't have to do that. That he's with us. That he's present right there with us. Even when the things of life come at us very suddenly and very shockingly. Let's face it. It's easier We're not always good at it, but it's easier to walk with a knowledge of God's presence when, you know, the day and the week and our parenting situations and our marriage situations and our work situations are kind of going along the way we expect them to. It's really tough to do that when all of a sudden something comes in that we didn't expect. As we walk through these verses, as we think about Christmas, one of the things that we are reminded of is that God is with us. Let's see how this passage tells us that reality and teaches us that reality. And we'll go briefly through these, but uh, turn with me, if you will, back to Isaiah chapter 7, the beginning part, verses 1 through 9. I really don't have a ton to say about this. I think you understand, even if the characters are a little confusing, what is here before Ahaz? What is here before Ahaz? Number one, he has an opportunity to trust. Verses 1 through 9 just remind us, folks, that every single day, think about this. Do we, do we think about our lives this way? Every single day that we wake up, that day is an opportunity with whatever things we face to decide to trust or not trust God's presence with us in our lives. We have that opportunity every single day. King Ahaz has an opportunity to do that if he wants to, but guess what he's doing instead? He's faced with these enemies without. He's faced with the struggle spiritually of his nation within, and instead of turning to God, he's turning to Assyria, the big dog on the block, to try to rescue them. So God speaks to this and gives him a sign or offers to give him a sign to help build trust. So look at verses 10 and 11 now with me very carefully. We'll zoom in on these for a few minutes. It says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. What's he saying? He's saying, Ahaz, I realize that you are having trouble trusting me right now. Whatever this situation is, I realize you are having trouble believing that God is present with you and near to you. So guess what I'm going to do for you? I'll give you a sign. I don't have to give you a sign, but I'll I'll give you one to help you out. He's condescending to Ahaz's 
weakness. Listen to what Ahaz says. So that's number two, a sign to help build trust. Number three, Ahaz gives this response in verses 12 and 13. I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Maybe sounds pretty good, right? I'm not going to test God. Sounds good on the surface. The reality is it sounds spiritual, but it's pseudo-spiritual. It's not really spiritual, and we see that in verse 13 because he's confronted. Here then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? So God's not pleased with this response from Ahaz. What is Ahaz doing here, folks? He's doing the same thing. We've talked about sort of a sense of abandonment and weakness and how we need to see God in those situations. We've talked about how things come into our life and shock us and we need to see God. But we also need to see God in those places where we feel we're pretty self-sufficient, where we feel like we can handle the situation. That's what's happening in these verses. Ahaz is saying, you know, even though I feel totally overwhelmed around I don't want you to give me a sign, God. I'm not going to pray about this little thing, we might say. I'm not going to bring this. This is just a business decision. I'm not going to bring this business decision before the Lord. Or this is just a relationship, family thing, or a parenting issue I'm wrestling. I'm not going to trouble God with that area of my life. Ahaz is being pseudo-spiritual, just like we're pseudo-spiritual, when we think we can handle things by ourselves and don't acknowledge our need for God's presence in every single area of our lives. It's a little bit like the child who's reaching up to grab that object, and we see this at our house way too often, and they're stretching well beyond their reach that they can possibly grab, and about to get a hold of that five-pound container of flour or sugar up on the top shelf. And you offer to help as a parent, and the child says, no, 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 I, I got it, Daddy. No, 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 I, I can get this. It's just a matter of time until some kind of crash happens. So, too, for us in our lives, whether it's things that seem little to us or big to us, where we say, I'm not going to bring that before God. He's not concerned with that. And part of the reason, let's be honest, that we do that, it's not just that we struggle to believe that he really cares or is going to help in those areas. Part of the reason is that like Ahaz, we know that if we bring that matter to God, he might have something to say about how we handle it. He's not only going to be present with us, but he's going to give us some direction about how to handle it. So we see with Ahaz a false trust. And we see that in ourselves as well, don't we? The last thing, and we'll take a couple minutes to walk through this because it's getting into our Christmas passage now. The last thing is we see that God gives Ahaz a redemptive sign. If you're working through your worship guide, write the word redemptive in there, a redemptive sign. God gives him a redemptive sign anyway. You understand? Ahaz has been offered a sign. He says, no, I don't want a sign. I, I don't want to test God. So he's, going to, he's still trying to handle it by himself. And God says, guess what? I'm going to go ahead and give you a sign anyway. And here's what it is. Verse 14 says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, I think we have an idea 
what this means in the time of Jesus. Again, I want to give us the background, the first 15, 20 minutes of that movie. What's it mean for Ahaz during this day? Well, it's, it works this way. The people of God, Israel, God's people, often referred to in the Scriptures as a woman. A picture of either a faithful woman to the Lord or unfaithful. That's a picture of God's people in God's Word. And the son of that woman is God's people, the remnant of God's people who will walk with the Lord, will walk in repentance, will walk in trust. And so, of course, ultimately this is going to come to fulfillment in Christ, in Christ's coming. But in Ahaz's own day, God is saying, the, the people of God, even though they're not trusting in me at this point, I'm going to continue on a remnant. A son is going to come forth. And he goes on to explain that this sort of convoluted verbiage that's I know difficult to understand, verse 15 and 16, that he'll eat curds and honey and knows how to refuse the right and choose the wrong. What's it saying there? It's just saying that by the time this remnant of people, of the people of God, reaches early adolescence, aged when they're old enough to be able to realize some right and wrong, that even by the time that happens, all these concerns that Ahaz has are going to be wiped away. And that's exactly what happens. If you look in your worship guide again, I give you the dates. Isaiah is given this prophecy about 734 B.C. Two years later, the whole of Syria, Damascus, is going to collapse under the weight of the foreign powers. And then Israel, the whole northern kingdom that's threatening Ahaz as well, in 722, it's going to collapse. By the time this remnant reaches the age of adolescence, all these things are not even going to be a concern. What's God saying there? He's saying that the priority for us is God's presence. The things in life are going to change and shift, and we don't know where things are going to go with this relationship or that situation with work or this difficulty we're facing in parenting or this challenge we might be facing as a church family. But God's promise is to be with us, and we can look to Him. He will fulfill His promise. He will carry on His work even where we are being unfaithful and looking to so many things outside of us. The whole idea is summarized in this way. Again, hang with me. So I think we'll, uh, we'll be helped by this from Webb. It's in your worship guide. The quotation says this. But Emmanuel sign contained a promise as well as a threat. For Isaiah and his followers, it meant the promise of God's protecting presence and the eventual fulfillment of God's good purposes for his people. The preservation of the remnant in Isaiah's day was part of a process which led finally to the coming of Jesus, the perfectly and faithful righteous one in whom all God's promises come to fulfillment. So Matthew was right, he says, to see the ultimate fulfillment of the Emmanuel saying in Jesus Christ, what was death to Ahaz is life to us who believe. Indeed it is. To trust God, to trust His presence, is at the core of salvation, is it not? To believe that this Christmas message is more than just uh, something we do each year, uh, stories or myths that we hear about some Savior, to embrace it personally, that's a work of of trusting God. We've got to trust in order to come to salvation, to to actually acknowledge that we're sinners, that we need God's grace, to acknowledge that He sent a Savior and His Son. It all requires great, it all requires trust on our part. 
But that same trust permeates a zillion other areas of our lives, doesn't it? When we're given opportunities at every turn in life to turn to everything else but the Lord, to trust everything else but the Lord, to have confidence in God's presence with us. Think about it in one particular way, and then we'll conclude. Think about some of those conflict situations maybe that you've been in recently. And I love this time of the year, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas. They're wonderful. But let's be honest, we get together with family, and sometimes those family relationships are some of the most difficult ones for us to navigate. And we may have a conflict situation at work, or we may be wrestling through some things as a couple or with a friendship, whatever situation that you can think of. But think about that conflict situation and how it would change, how it would be transformed if there was a recognition of God's presence in that interaction. We've got to trust God. We have to trust God if we're going to take the log out of our own eye and see the speck in our brother's eye. You've got to trust God to do that. We have to trust God and his grace and message of grace to us if we're going to realize that we need to extend grace to other people. We need to extend grace to that person that we're in a conflict with. We've got to trust. We might have to trust God in order to be honest with someone about a situation. We have to trust that God is at work in our relationships, to not be fearful, maybe to say something lovingly, graciously that needs to be said. You think about most conflicts, if you will, uh, we tend to view them, whatever the situation may be, that, you know, I say 25% of that issue is, is my thing that I need to deal with. About 75% is the other person. I'm not saying I'm totally uh, without fault in here, but you know, it's 25%. They, they, they would start to clean up their 75%, then maybe we'll meet halfway. You've got to trust God to believe that that 25% is 100% of what you need to deal with and what you can deal with. That's just one picture of a place in our life where we need to be reminded of God's presence. You know, sometimes as we think about all of this, the opportunity to trust God and realize His presence, sometimes our little ones are so much smarter than us, aren't they? Our uh, littlest one seems to have an ability, like a lot of these little ones, to recognize his need for somebody outside of him who's bigger than him to be present with him. A little one, our littlest one, wakes up probably every third night, about an hour and a half after we put him down to bed or so. So kind of around the time when patients and I are starting to get ready to go to bed ourselves, He'll start to cry out. This happens about every three nights. And he's just crying. You can tell he's scared. You can tell he needs some help. And I've now become the designated person to go in because this is what plays out. He's got a fear of bears. Don't know where the fear of bears came, but it's in his mind. And so I will come in, and he's crying, and I don't know really why I asked the question anymore, but I said, buddy, are you having a bad dream? He whimpers back and says, yeah, Daddy, you're having a bad dream. I say, well, what is it about? What's the dream? That it's a bear. It's a bear, Daddy. And then I ask this simple question. 
Do you want Daddy to pow that bear dead? He says, yeah, Daddy. And I do this, I don't know why, I have a motion. i got a pow motion. you got to have a pow motion to make it convincing. But I just say, pow! He gives me a hug. He lays right back down to bed and goes to sleep. Folks, when God sends Jesus into the world, he's given us that pow. He's saying that I have come in. I have the power. I have the capacity to deal with every situation in your life. And that you're foolish if you're feeling abandoned or lost or suicidal or depressed and you don't look to me and ask for my presence and power. I promise to give it. I will give it. We're foolish if we walk through our lives and think self-sufficiently that we can manage things on our own. God says that he's present with us, that he loves us. We can rest in that. I hope you'll have great joy in that as we move into this Christmas season. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, how we do praise you today that you have fulfilled this promise Oh, Lord, that this promise finds its fulfillment, its fruition in Jesus Christ. Come, who trusted you perfectly, who is our perfect righteousness. Lord, just as you promised to Ahaz long ago that a sign would come, oh, Lord, you have given that sign in its fullness to us. Lord, give us eyes to see it and our lives to be transformed by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.